1996, someone murdered four people in a furniture store in a small town in Mississippi. Authorities quickly honed in on Curtis Flowers as their prime suspect, and a year later, he was convicted of murder. On appeal, the jury's decision was overturned based on prosecutorial misconduct. So the prosecutor tried Curtis again, and a new jury convicted Curtis. But that decision was also thrown out based on prosecutorial misconduct. Ultimately, the state would try Flowers six times. The last attempt made its way to the Supreme Court, where seven justices ruled that the prosecutor had systematically excluded jurors based on their race. In dissent, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that prosecutors should be able to exclude whomever they please on any basis they want. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And on this episode of DIST, we're taking on Flowers versus Mississippi. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Greetings. I am the Count. They call me the Count because I love to count things. In law, there's an awful lot of counting. Counting down the seconds of oral argument. Counting the number of amicus briefs you can round up. And counting to four, the number of justices needed to get your case granted by the Supreme Court. Most famously, there's counting to five, the number of justices needed to win the case. Or counting to 12, the number of jurors needed to get a unanimous guilty verdict. In Curtis Flower's case, one can do a lot of counting. Six trials, 72 total jurors, 23 years in prison, and $500,000 in compensation for wrongful imprisonment. The question is, what happens when attorneys start counting on an improper basis? For example, counting how they can get 12 white jurors. The origin of the Curtis Flowers case and its surprising descent is a crime that took place in a small town in the summer of 1996. Here's someone who knows a little bit about it. Hi, I'm Sherry Johnson, and I'm a professor at the Cornell Law School, and I represented Curtis Flowers in the Mississippi State Courts and in the Supreme Court of the United States. Someone killed four people at a uh, furniture store in Winona, Mississippi, and there are no eyewitnesses, and there's really no forensic evidence of any strength. And it was early settled on uh, Mr. Flowers that he might be the perpetrator because a family member of one of the victims said, oh, well, he was recently let go uh, as an employee, so maybe he feels animosity. And the, um, the prosecution quite quickly settled on that theory, perhaps because they had no other clear theories, and created a case by interviewing people and offering rewards uh, of testimony that would place Mr. Flowers near to the crime scene. And there was also an identification of him that was right outside the crime scene, but that was an, a cross-racial identification made by a man who could only describe the person he saw as African-American, and one of them was taller than the other. And that man also actually tentatively identified another person before he tentatively identified Mr. Flowers. So it's a case that from the beginning was an extraordinarily weak case for guilt. And it was bolstered uh, by, at several different points, snitches who said, I heard Curtis Flowers uh, confess, but 
There have been three of those snitches, each of whom themselves have recanted. Uh, When Doug Evans... That's the prosecutor of this case, but we'll get to him later. Doug Evans uh, had one recanting snitch, then he found another. So the case from the beginning, I think it's important to notice, is factually an extraordinarily weak case. In late 1997, Curtis was brought to trial, not knowing it would be just the first of six trials. From the outset, there were some irregularities with the way that Evans used his peremptory strikes. And what's a peremptory strike, you ask? We know just the guy to ask. My name is Stephen Bright. I teach right now at uh, Yale and Georgetown Law Schools. I spent about uh, 35 years as the director of the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta. There are two kinds of strikes. Either side in picking a jury can uh, make a motion to the judge to strike a person for what we call for cause. That is because the person can't be fair and impartial. And a person cannot be fair and impartial for any reason that might exist. It can be they know one of the witnesses or they know one of the parties or they know the victim. It could be they've read a lot about the case in the newspaper or heard it on the media or social media now, of course, is so important. Any reason that a person wouldn't be able to decide the case totally uh, on the evidence that's presented. And then there are peremptory strikes. Every uh, jurisdiction except one now, Arizona, provides that each side has a certain number of strikes, which historically they could use for any reason. No reason need to be given. And what's the rationale behind peremptories? Well, so the idea is that an advocate might observe behavior on the part of a prospective jury that signals that he or she is not neutral. Um, and that behavior might not be said in words of I'm I'm biased for the prosecution or I'm biased for the defense, but instead conveyed in nonverbal ways or might even be something about which the one of the parties has a strong feeling that something will bias the juror, despite the fact the juror says that won't bias him or her. And so the idea of peremptories is that that is going to protect against those cases of bias that are not plain on the record, but that one or both of the parties feel strongly is present in a particular juror. As Professor Bright mentioned, it used to be that an attorney could strike a potential juror for any reason, but that subjectivity led to a pernicious abuse of these strikes. Well, the important thing to know about peremptory strikes is that historically they've been used to uh, strike people of color and to get all white juries. Uh, For a long time, there was exclusion of people of color from jury pools, For example, in Talladega, Alabama, when Robert Swain was on trial. Robert Swain was a defendant in a case in the 1960s that went up to the Supreme Court. Talladega County had about 25% African-American. They were about 15% in the jury pool. And after they struck down with the strikes for cause, there were six black people left and the prosecutor used peremptory strikes, strike all those people and to get an all white jury. And the Supreme Court reviewed that in the case of Swain versus Alabama and remarkably said in that case, you can strike a person, a a peremptory strike for any reason. It can be race. It can be religion. It can be any characteristic that you think that person may not be uh, fair to you. Just a gut instinct or maybe a more thought out instinct. But around this time, Thurgood Marshall started dissenting in cases, starting with a case called McRae versus New York in 1983, in which he pointed out the prosecutor struck all the blacks to get an all-white jury. And this is happening case after case, and you ought to do something about it. So he just kept dissenting and kept pointing this out, and it embarrassed, I think, the court enough 
that finally in 1985, the court decided to review the case of James Batson, who had been convicted of burglary in Louisville, Kentucky, and the prosecutor in that case, although that wasn't like a capital case, and it wasn't a huge number of Black people like we see in, in many cases, where you see, you know, 5, 10, 15, I've even seen cases with 20 strikes of Black people by the prosecution. At any rate, the Supreme Court in that case, in an opinion by Justice Lewis Powell, said, this is going on, this discrimination is going on, and we're going to try to stop it. Yet again, an illustration of the power of dissent. We now call any challenges to racially motivated peremptory strikes Batson challenges. And how do Batson challenges work? If the defense attorney thinks that there's discrimination in the use of strikes, the defense can object. If the defense attorneys can make a prima facie showing of discrimination, the burden then shifts to the prosecutor to give race-neutral reasons for the strikes. At that point, the burden shifts back to the defense to try to show that the race-neutral reasons are merely protectual. As Professor Bright has pointed out, it can be difficult to win Batson challenges. Well, what Justice Marshall said in Batson, in his concurring opinion, he said the only way you're going to prevent discrimination is to eliminate peremptory strikes. He said this will never work. First of all, in a lot of cases, you don't have a two or three blacks in the in the jury veneer, so you're you're not going to have a, enough to make out a case. But then he said, you know, any prosecutor that is smart enough to go to law school and practice law is going to be able to think of a reason. And how would the judge know whether the reason is the actual reason or whether it's just a pretext, whether he's just making up a reason? And that has proven to be the case. I mean. Not long after that, the court held in a case that the reason could be silly, it could be superstitious, it didn't have to make sense, it didn't have to be related to the case. And so what we see is that a lot of cases, the reasons are very trivial. The one where the court said that was a case where the prosecutor said, I didn't strike the guy because he was black, I struck him because he had a beard. And I don't like people with beards. And I struck the other black guy because he had a a mustache and a goatee. And I don't like people with goatees. There's yet another reason it's difficult to win a Batson challenge. This is a critical thing. Uh, For a trial judge to find a Batson violation, the judge has to find two things. One, that the prosecutor intentionally discriminated on the basis of race. And second, lied about it by giving a a false reason instead of the real reason, it's race. Well, you know, most prosecutors and and, uh, uh, judges who are in court every day and know each other, they may be friends, and one time the judge may have been in the prosecutor's office himself. He's not going to make a finding. You know, in the Flowers versus Mississippi case, uh, Justice Kavanaugh said that trial judges are on the front lines of preventing discrimination. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, The trial judges can't. Politically, these are elected judges. You want the prosecutor to run against you in the next election? You know, say that he's discriminating and say that he's a liar. He'll probably be running against you in the next election. Uh, But just psychologically, if you work with somebody every day, day in and day out, and they're before you, and are you really going to say that they intentionally discriminated and that they lied about it? Yeah, that really speaks to me. I can't tell you how many times I've showed up and, you know, immediately I get grilled by the judge and then they turn it over to the government's counsel and the judge is like, oh, how was the traffic? It's good to see you again. (laughs) Well, there's one case, there's one case um, out of the Seventh Circuit where the prosecutor and the judge 
I went on a, a, to a vacation hideaway uh, to have a vacation together after the trial. I mean, how would you really feel if you're the lawyer in that case? But that happens. These things happen. That's not to say all judges are like this. But as Professor Bright says, it happens. Yet, Batson challenges do sometimes succeed. Professor Bright has litigated a few of them at the Supreme Court. The facts can be striking. In Rome, Georgia, that same year, uh, these two lawyers, court-appointed lawyers representing uh, Timothy Foster, filed a motion, and they said, in this county, the prosecutor always strikes all the blacks. They always have, and they're going to do it in this case, and judge, don't let them do it. That was back in the late 1980s. What happened? The court found there was no Batson violation and the conviction was upheld on appeal. But several years later, Professor Bright took the case and filed an Open Records Act request for the prosecutor's file. That evidence turned out to be very incriminating, astonishingly incriminating, and it ultimately led to the conviction being thrown out by the Supreme Court nearly 20 years later. I told Professor Bright that I couldn't believe he was able to get these documents, which were essentially a smoking gun. He said, The only reason those notes were still there was that prosecutor had left office, another prosecutor had come to that office, left, and now there was another prosecutor who knew nothing about that case. So when my investigator went to look at the file, lo and behold, there are all these notes in the file in which Blacks are listed B1, B2, B3. There's a memorandum comparing the Blacks to each other that ended with if we have to accept a black, maybe Miss Garrett will be okay. There was a list of definite no's of the people that are going to be struck. They were all black. There were all these things. And, and the prosecution in that case, this, they, their, their strategy was to just give as many reasons as they could. They gave like eight to 12 reasons for each black, why they struck them. And the file, it was clear from the file that some of the reasons were not true. They just simply were not true. They said they struck a man because he was a member of the Church of Christ, and the Church of Christ was strongly opposed to the death penalty. Well, right there in the prosecutor's file, in his own handwriting, uh, was a note that said, Church of Christ, down below that, takes no position on the death penalty, leaves it up to each member. But, but the lesson of that case is that uh, it didn't bother the Georgia courts at all. They upheld the death penalty, and they upheld the strikes in that case, both on direct appeal and later after the information came out and we presented all that information and all the lies the prosecutor had told and the Georgia courts. In fact, Tim Foster would have been executed had it not been for the fact that the Supreme Court granted review in his case and held that, that he was, uh, that there was a violation of his rights uh, by the striking of these African-Americans in church service. Needless to say, the history of peremptory strikes is an ugly one, and Batson has been a valuable tool in rooting out discrimination in the jury selection process. But how does that relate to the Flowers case? One, two, three, spread out the cape. One, two, three, twirl around the floor. One, two, three, left foot to swing. One, two, three, in Curtis's first trial, there were 36 total prospective jurors, 31 white, five black. The state used its peremptory challenges to strike all five of the black prospective jurors, resulting in an all-white jury, which convicted Flowers. That conviction was eventually reversed. 
But the court didn't even get to the defendant's Batson challenge because Doug Evans violates another aspect of Mississippi law, really in an, in an effort to get more than one shot at convicting Mr. Flowers. He introduced all of the evidence of related to all of the homicides, but then tried it only against with only one victim name that would offer him the opportunity to perhaps try it three more times. And the Mississippi Supreme Court said, no, 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 you can't do that. You either have to choose that you will present all of the evidence and include all of the victims in the indictment, or else you have to present the evidence only relevant to one victim. So it was reversed on that ground uh, initially. Doug Evans decided to try Curtis Flowers for a second time. And yet again, there were wide disparities when it came to how the state used its strikes. There were five prospective black jurors, and the prosecution attempted to strike all of them. But this time... There was a a Batson challenge, and the trial judge found that there was a Batson violation and then seated the the challenge juror. So there's that finding of discriminatory intent that does lead to a a, a conviction with only one African-American juror uh, on the panel. But that case was also reversed for prosecutorial misconduct. It's actually the same misconduct as with respect to the first trial, because he he did that more than once. Which brings us to trial three, where there was a larger pool of qualified Black jurors. In trial three, there were 16 prospective Black jurors, and the state used all 15 of its strikes against them, resulting in one Black juror being seated. But on appeal? The Mississippi Supreme Court finds that his extensive use of peremptory challenges against African-American jurors presented the strongest uh, prima facie case of a Batson violation that it had ever seen. And there's actually even some language saying, you know, we have to think about whether this is really uh, workable uh, in, in our state. So they do then reverse that. And then that leads to trial four and um, trials four and five result in mistrials. But then something else interesting happens in in trial five, which is that when the jury hangs, the prosecutor arrests two of the the two black jurors and charges them with with crimes. Those the charges actually are ultimately dropped. But that is, I think, a very discouraging factor for African-American jurors in trial six who might be quicker to say, I'm biased. Please don't seat me. I don't want to sit in this case. You couldn't consider me because there's an intimidation factor going on there. Why were there more black jurors in trials four and five? First, there were more potential black jurors in the jury pool than in some of the other trials, meaning it would be harder to exclude them all. Second, because it's tried non-capitally, they get fewer peremptory strikes. So that's how it turns out that there are more African-American jurors uh, in that case. But in six, uh, we're back to a capital prosecution. And, you know, I think it's interesting that Mr. Evans decided to go from a non-capital prosecution back to a capital prosecution. And that may be in part because he does get more peremptory strikes. And so, um, so then he uses his strikes to to excuse all but one African-American juror. Once again, the case makes its way to the Mississippi Supreme Court, where Flowers' attorneys argue, unsuccessfully, that the conviction ought to be overturned based on Batson. Those arguments began with the history of Mr. Evans in this case and how many times he tried it and how many African-American jurors he'd struck over time, and then goes on to other indicia of discriminatory purpose. But the Mississippi Supreme Court majority does not even mention Mr. Evans' prior history. And it doesn't do that 
even though an earlier case, uh, Miller L. versus Dredke, has instructed lower courts that the history is a relevant factor. So they didn't say that, but there is one judge uh, on the Mississippi Supreme Court who dissents, uh, who is an African-American judge who says, Judge King, you know, you have to look at this in light of uh, his prior history. That's a relevant fact. And then he also says, he, he repeats in another way, an argument that we made, which is, any way you slice it, he questioned African-American jurors very differently than he questioned white jurors. So that by disparate questioning, he made it possible to say, oh, here I see some indicator of bias in a black juror, and there isn't a matching white juror because I didn't ask the white juror questions about that. So Judge King makes those arguments. And I think that makes a position, which is what we argued asking for Supreme Court review that you have to consider the prosecutor's history and refusal to do that in light of Supreme Court precedent means that that cert ought to be granted and the case ought to be reversed. So Flowers' petition to the Supreme Court is pending, but then what happens? Professor Bright's case, Foster versus Chapman, is granted and the court put Flowers on hold while it heard Foster. The Supreme Court eventually rules in Foster's favor and grants vacates and remands, or GVR as SCOTUS watchers call it, Flowers' case back to the Mississippi Supreme Court so that court can reconsider. But the court doesn't really reconsider. Instead, the Mississippi Supreme Court denied oral argument on the case and issues an opinion in which it says, Foster doesn't have anything to do with this, and Miller L. doesn't have anything to do with this. And then it pasted its prior opinion into its new opinion. And I think whether you view that as disrespect or disregard of precedent, that was, I think, a key factor in granting cert the second time in Flowers versus Mississippi. At this point, the Supreme Court takes up Flowers' case to decide the Batson issue itself. So, how did the court rule? In a 7-2 decision, the court held that Doug Evans violated Batson. Writing for the majority, Justice Kavanaugh found four pieces of evidence persuasive. First, the history of Flowers' six trials. Second, Evans' striking of five of six black prospective jurors at the sixth trial. Third, his dramatically disparate questioning of black and white prospective jurors at the sixth trial. And fourth, his purported reasons for striking one black juror, Carolyn Wright, while allowing other similarly situated white jurors to serve on the jury. The numbers alone are conspicuous. Over the first four trials, there were 36 black prospective jurors. The state tried to strike all 36. Over the course of all of Curtis Flowers' trials, the prosecution used 41 of its 42 strikes against black jurors. With regards to the prosecution's questioning of potential jurors, on average, the state asked 29 questions to each black prospective juror that it ended up striking. The state asked an average of one question to each seated white juror. Although the state tried to justify this disparate questioning based on the jurors' different characteristics, Justice Kavanaugh found those justifications didn't hold water. The state had asked Diane Copper, a black prospective juror who was struck, 18 follow-up questions about her relationships with Flowers' family and with witnesses. By contrast, it asked Pamela Chastine, a white juror that the state accepted for the jury, not one follow-up question, even though she also knew several members of the Flowers' family. Nor did the state ask any follow-up questions to four other white prospective jurors who had relationships with defense witnesses. 
Last, some of the prosecution's justifications turned out to be flat misrepresentations of the record, suggesting they were mere pretexts for the exclusions. Justice Kavanaugh concluded that these extraordinary facts evidenced a Batson violation. Two justices dissented. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, thought the majority simply got it wrong and the strikes were race neutral. In typical Justice Thomas fashion, he began his dissent by recounting the grisly details of the crime, focusing on the harm to the victims. He then moved on to the prosecutor's justifications for the exclusions, which he found not clearly erroneous, but clearly correct. Two struck jurors in the sixth trial, he said, had been sued by a member of the victim's family. Jurors that were sat, by contrast, only knew the victim's family. Disparate questioning, he reasoned, makes sense under such circumstances. And while the majority complained that both white and black jurors knew people related to the case, by the majority's own admission, one of the struck jurors knew the highest number of people involved. With regard to the prosecution's history of using its strikes to exclude almost solely black jurors, Justice Thomas explained that those previous strikes had been found justifiable. The bare numbers, he wrote, are meaningless outside the context of the reasons for those strikes. Because the majority, quote, distorts the record of this case, eviscerates our standard of review, and vacates four murder convictions because the state struck a juror who would have been stricken by any competent attorney, I dissent. But Justice Thomas went even further. In a section not joined by Justice Gorsuch, he argued that Batson should be overturned. It's important to note that Justice Thomas is not unsympathetic to racism. He's a man who grew up in the segregated South and experienced racism firsthand. He's a man who left his desired profession, the seminary, after hearing people in the clergy celebrate Martin Luther King's assassination. A man who was devoted to equality as head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where he was supportive of historically black universities and colleges, and was motivated to advocate for equality before the law because he sought to make the world better for his son. So what's his objection to Batson, which is aimed at getting rid of discrimination? He seems to have three overarching concerns. First, he says, striking jurors on the basis of race is not discrimination against the defendant. It's discrimination against the juror. If anything, such claims should be brought by prospective jurors, not defendants. Second, he contends that peremptories are a way for parties, including black defendants, to protect themselves from racially biased jurors. Third, he says that statistics can be used to support all sorts of theories. They're easily manipulated, and they're not necessarily evidence of discrimination. Although he doesn't say it, one might surmise that he's concerned that an overemphasis on disparities will lead to racial balancing, which itself is a form of discrimination, rather than measures that actually ensure there's equality before the law. Justice Thomas's sole question at oral argument brings out this point. Were any peremptories exercised by the defendant? They were. And what was the race of the jurors struck there? She only exercised peremptories against white jurors. In other words, two can play that game. As Justice Sotomayor quickly pointed out. She didn't have any black jurors to exercise preemptories against except the first except one. Except the first one. But maybe that was the entire point of the question. If you leave out the context, one could use bare numbers to suggest the defense was racially motivated, since she only struck white jurors. We asked Professor Bright about Justice Thomas's contention that a discriminatory strike injures the juror, but not the defendant. He responded, I mean, Thomas sort of argues that it's discrimination against the juror. Well, it may be that, but it's also discrimination from the standpoint of the defendant. 
The defendant, a person on trial, has a right to a jury that is chosen without discrimination. Uh, That's been the law forever, that in selecting the jury pool, you can't exclude people on the basis of race. And of course, there's also a right under the Sixth Amendment to a jury that's a fair cross-section of the community. One thing that many people, I think, don't think of with this is when you have a situation like in Jefferson Parish and Snyder, where the prosecutors are always striking all the African-Americans case after case in jury selection. You know, people in the community don't have a lot of uh, faith in the, in the legal system. It doesn't seem legitimate or credible. We also asked Professor Johnson to respond to Thomas's observation that regardless of its racial composition, the jury was impartial, and nobody argued otherwise. If so, why didn't Flowers get a fair trial? I think that Justice Thomas is just mistaken about whether or not this will lead to fair proceedings. And I think that that it won't. And I also think that uh, whether it would or would not, the Equal Protection Clause assures us that the state is not going to act on the basis of race absent truly compelling circumstances. And Mr. Evans did not respect that. And so it was right that the conviction be reversed. Justice Thomas is right, though. Disparities don't always arise from discrimination. And in a way, assuming that the mere fact of having more white jurors on the bench somehow prejudices a defendant is race essentialist. Why should we assume that having a white juror rather than a black juror makes a difference or injures a defendant? That's doing the very thing we're chastising the prosecution for. But regardless of whether excluding people on the basis of race affects the verdict, the burden isn't on the defendant to justify race neutrality. The burden's on the state to justify discrimination. If the prosecution thinks a person is biased, it should have to prove it rather than relying on a person's skin color alone. As Justice Thomas himself has said elsewhere, every time the government makes race relevant to the provision of burdens or benefits, it demeans us all. That being said, one can see shades of Justice Thomas's worries coming to fruition. As Professor Bright mentioned, Some other courts that have said that Batson has not been working, like the Supreme Court of the state of Washington, it said several years ago, discrimination in jury selection is rampant. And if it doesn't stop, we're going to do something about it. And a couple of years ago, they adopted a rule where they say, we don't look anymore at intentional race discrimination. We have an objective standard. And the rule also has some language in it about the objective observer is a person who knows that there's such a thing as unconscious racism. That was one other thing that Justice Marshall pointed out, that both the prosecutor and the uh, judge might have uh, unconscious racial biases that they didn't even realize were coming into play when when they struck these jurors. So that approach that Washington adopted has also been adopted by California. The idea that the state can or should remedy supposed unconscious bias is a dangerous proposition because it assumes racism in all acts, and it can lead to race-conscious remedies in the name of getting rid of discrimination. Professor Johnson said, I will say that I would personally go further than Batson goes. I think that defendants of color should be entitled to representation by their racial group on the jury, and I wrote that back in 1986, uh, so quite a long time ago. Uh, But that's a place that the Supreme Court has never gone. To many, racial balance for its own sake flips equal treatment on its head. It requires unequal treatment. 
excluding jurors from certain spots on the jury based on race alone. Perhaps Justice Thomas saw this as a natural implication of Batson, a world where unconscious discrimination is assumed, a world where racial balancing is required. In any event, Batson appears to be safely on the books. I asked Professor Johnson, did anything uh, ever happen to Doug Evans? Did he ever, was he ever disciplined as far as you know? No, he was not. And in fact, he ran unopposed uh, even after his behavior became quite public and he was re-elected uh, district attorney, though he is now running uh, for judge and he is not unopposed in running for judge. Talk about failing up. But I digress. You're probably wondering what happened to Curtis Flowers. Well, the state, with a new attorney general in office and Doug Evans recused from participating, decided against taking a seventh crack at prosecuting Flowers. Though he won at the Supreme Court and all the charges had been dropped, this decades-long saga took a toll on Flowers. As Professor Johnson explained, Well, that's he's no longer in jail and he's no longer facing the death penalty. So yes, I think in that sense, it's a, it's a triumph for him personally. You know, although, you know, he lost 22, 23 years of his life in that prime time when you're building your life. He lost his mother and was not able to go to her funeral. So I think, um, you know, it's certainly better than continuing to incarcerate him or trying to kill him, which is what the state of Mississippi was trying to do all through Supreme Court proceedings. But it's it's not a perfect fix. And I guess I would also want to say, you know, to people who think of this as a triumph of the justice system, I'm going to say an awful lot of serendipity went into this case it would not have had to turn out this way at all. One thing is that in the beginning, the Mississippi Supreme Court's opinion did not mention the history at all. If they had mentioned it and said it was not all that important, I think that would have been a much weaker claim for a cert. Foster versus Chapman happened to be up at the same time. That's another piece of serendipity. Then the Mississippi Supreme Court acted disrespectfully. And that's another piece of serendipity. And so, and then the very last piece that I think is relevant is that the party controlling the Mississippi Attorney General's office changed hands. But if the office had not changed hands, I think he probably would have been prosecuted again. So I still worry about that racial fairness of the system as a whole has not been altered, though I have to be happy that in this one case, a better result happened. And one bright spot, a judge ordered the state to pay Curtis Flowers $50,000 a year for 10 years of imprisonment, the maximum allowed under Mississippi law. As he told one reporter, I'm living every day to the fullest now. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm doing everything I can to make sure it's a good one. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Wait, as... <laughs> Anastasia's shoving food in her mouth. You hit record. I'm hungry. I need oatmeal. I need sustenance. I don't begrudge you your oatmeal. I just thought it was kind of funny, the timing. <laughs> savory. Savory. 100%. Wait, like what's a savory oatmeal? Milk. <laughs> I don't like cut fruit. I have a cut fruit phobia. So why? I just like flies landing on cut fruit is like a real thing.
to me. Like yeah. the fruit sitting out and getting all like mushy and disgusting and then flies come and then they sit on it and then yeah. they scoop up the fruit and they hand it to you and they're like, here. Yeah. I didn't delete, delete Elizabeth's LOL. Just wanted to inflate my ego there. Not I respectfully descend. Mm. Mm. Shots mm. fired, Clarence. No R-E-S-P-E-C-T. They're easy man- – they're easily manipulable. Oh my god! <laughs> Statistics are manipulable. <laughs> this should be fun. Um, they're easily manipulable. Oh god, manipul. <laughs> Strike that Man- from the the bloopers. <laughs> manipulable, manipulable. I'm happy to split that up, Elizabeth. It's just like a rant, and I didn't want to like put words in your mouth if you didn't believe them. <laughs> No, I was just waiting patiently for your um, for you to get off your soapbox. <laughs> you always got to. I mean, there's quite a few episodes where I'm like, mm, can't help myself here. Uh, so Bond one. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Bond one. Not the case at issue. You didn't want to include my anecdote about the implicit association <laughs> test. And for everyone to know, Elizabeth discriminates against white people. <laughs> <laughs> According to a test I took online. <laughs> 